Hi, welcome to Eat, Sleep, and Don't Die, your weekly dose of nightmares and monsters, otherwise known as paranormal activity and true crime stories. Join me today as we talk about the disappearance of Susan Swiddell and Moreland Mansion. Welcome to episode 23 of Eat, Sleep, and Don't Die. I hope you guys all had a wonderful week and weekend. My husband and I managed to not kill each other during our quarantine. Um, He's also feeling much better, and by the time that you guys hear this on Monday or any day after, um, he will be out of his quarantine and hopefully back to work. Unfortunately for me, I still have four days left. I don't come out of my quarantine until uh, Thursday night would be my last day of it, so I go back to work on Friday. Um, And for anybody wondering about that, it's because the CDC recommends if you test positive and you're unvaccinated, then you need to quarantine for 10 days. And then if you test negative, but you came into contact with someone who was positive and you're unvaccinated, you need to quarantine for 14 days. So that's why his quarantine is only 10 days and mine is 14. Um, But I will be back to work on Friday and then next week starts a whole new week. Um, Max, my dog, he's also doing a lot better. I think his kennel cough's completely gone at this point, but we're going to give him a few more days before we um, reintroduce him to some dogs, just because we want to make sure it's gone so we don't get any other dogs sick. Um, So that's all great news in our household. This coming week, we're going to be laying pretty low because obviously I'm still under quarantine. Um, But then this weekend, we have a couple things going on. So I have a car show, or I should say we, my husband and I, have a car show that we're going to be going to on Sunday. And then Saturday, we have a party to go to because our cousin Keith is an Eagle Scout. And I'll actually be baking the cupcakes for his party, so I'm excited about that. Um, So congratulations, Keith, on becoming an Eagle Scout. Um... If you guys follow the Instagram or Facebook group, you'll see that I finally got my desk ready for use. Um, I'm super excited to have it available to create from. It gives me a stationary place to do everything, and I've been talking probably about a year about cleaning off this desk and using it for, like, making it a useful space. Um, So I finally got the bug to clean it off and make it a space. So it's nothing fancy, but it's enough to set up my iPad, my notes, and my mic to record. I also use it to do my bullet journal, which if you don't know what that is, you can just Google it. Um, But it essentially makes it, uh, makes me a little bit more organized. It gives me a way to track things, write things down, remember things. So I really like doing it. Um, And if you've been listening for a while, you'll know that I've typically recorded from three different places. Um, I've either recorded from my dining room table, my coffee table, or most recently as my last episode, I recorded from my bedside night table. Um, Or my night, my night side, bedside night stand, whatever. Um, So I'm glad to finally have one place to do my research, record, edit, and publish my podcast from. Um, But anyway, let's get into today's episode. Our first story today is about Susan Swiddell. Um, 
This story was actually suggested by a longtime listener, huge supporter, and my dear cousin Brandy. Thank you for the suggestion. It's a pretty interesting story, so here we go. The last time that 19-year-old Susan Swaddell was seen was at a case station shortly after 9 p.m. on January 19, 1988. Sue had left her job at a local Kmart in Oak Park Heights, Minnesota. She was supposed to go home to watch movies and eat popcorn with her mom and her sister. Sue had called her mother earlier during her shift to tell her that she would go straight home afterwards. By the time she finished, there was a blizzard that had moved into the area. Right before she left, um, sorry, right before she left work, she, her supervisor and coworkers noticed something odd. Sue had changed out of her work clothes and into a short skirt and a sweater and possibly had a down jacket with her, but it's neither confirmed or denied. Um, this was odd because she obviously wasn't dressed appropriately for the weather, aka the blizzard that was roaring outside at the time that she left. Um, Sue then waved them goodbye and made her way through the snow-covered parking lot to brush off her 1975 Oldsmobile Cutlass, and then she warmed it up and drove off. After driving a few miles, her car began to overheat and smoke, so she pulled into the K station, which is a gas station out in the Midwest, um, and it was located on the corner of Stillwater Boulevard and Manning Avenue. Um, she parked her car and was observed by the gas station attendant talking to a man in a car that pulled in right after her and then alongside her. She then entered the store, told the attendant of her car troubles, and asked if she could leave it in the lot overnight. The attendant said that she was more than welcome to leave the car, but she had to move it to the other side of the lot because there was a plow coming to plow the side that she had pulled onto. Um, the attendant then watched her move her car and then get into the car of the unidentified man who followed her into the lot. They left and headed west on Highway 5, which was presumably in the direction that she lived. Um, around 11 p.m., when Sue didn't arrive home, her mother Kathy and her little sister began to worry that she may have been involved in an accident due to the weather conditions outside. Kathy called the police and asked if they would look for her car. She told them she told them Sue's usual route home from work and described what her vehicle looked like. Police quickly located her car at the K station where she had left it. However, the K station was closed for the night by that time, and obviously there was no sign of Sue in sight. The deputy was afraid that Sue might have tried to walk home, so he slowly traveled her route home and still saw no sign of her, and it was hard for them to see tracks because the snow was falling at the moment. By morning, seven inches of snow had accumulate, accumulated, and this made it hard to look for footprints or tire prints. The deputy stopped his search, but let other units know to be on the lookout for Sue. Kathy and Sue's little sister, Christine, were consumed with worry that Sue was injured outside in the below freezing temps, so they didn't sleep through the whole night. Deputies returned to the case station the day after Sue was last seen to speak with the attendant who last saw and spoke to Sue. He confirmed that she had car trouble and left with a man in a light-colored car that was in good shape but was dirty. 
He didn't know the make or model, and he did give a brief description of what the man looked like, noting that he had curly, shoulder-length hair that was sandy brown, and his face was unshaven. He appeared tall and well-built and was wearing a leather jacket. The attendant assumed that she knew him as she had spoke to him when she pulled into the lot before she came into the, the store. Once police found out that she voluntarily got into the car, they stopped their investigation. They told her mother that she likely ran off with her boyfriend and would return home in a few days. She was over 18 after all and free to leave if she wanted to. They felt no need to continue their search. Kathy and Christine attempted to convince police that Sue wasn't the type of person to just run away. And they even brought up the fact that Sue's purse, ID, wallet, and glasses were found locked in her car. Sue couldn't see without her glasses, so she wouldn't have left voluntarily without them. Police weren't convinced and insisted that she ran away. They didn't even do a forensic investigation of her car. They just allowed her mother to drive it home. Kathy didn't notice any issues on the one-mile drive home from the K station to their apartment. Five days later, Kathy was worried that the car would sit idle for too long and the battery would die, so she decided to take it to the grocery store. A few miles down the road, she noticed that the car was overheating and assumed that this was the car trouble that Sue was having the night of the storm, so she had it towed to the local mechanic shop. And guys, this is where things get a little disturbing. Um, the mechanic discovered that the car was overheating because the petcock, which is a small bolt located under the radiator, had been loosened. This allowed for water to drain out of the radiator, ensuring that the car would overheat. Kathy reported this to police, and of course, they, of course then they believed someone purposely loosened this bolt knowing that the vehicle would overheat in a few miles, and then the person, presumably the un unidentified man, followed her until she pulled over. Detectives then interviewed Sue's friends and co-workers, and they found out that she had been receiving multiple calls at work from a man named Dale. It wasn't clear if, if they were a couple or not, but she also had reconnected with an ex recently, and she planned to see that ex that night that she disappeared, but he canceled because of the weather conditions. They also learned that she had been frequently calling chat lines to talk to men and had racked up a phone bill of $300, which at that time was a lot of money. It's a lot of money now, but it was also a lot more back then. They don't know if she had met with any of those men from the chat line, though. My thought was, could this Dale person have been one of those guys? Who knows, because they don't know who this Dale is. Um, to add to the disturbing discoveries, a week later, Christine came home after school to find the spare key of their house moved from its original spot. So it was originally on a shelf near the front door, hidden under something. Instead, she found it on a different shelf under a box in the back corner. She figured her mom had just moved it and forgot to mention it. When she unlocked the door and went to go inside, she immediately knew something wasn't right. Christine noticed that there was dishes in the sink that weren't there when she left in the morning for school. She also noticed a sweet, smoky smell hanging in the air. She immediately backed out of the house and went to a neighbor's house. 
where she called her mom at work. Kathy immediately left work and went straight home. The two then entered the home together, and aside from the dishes and smell, nothing was out of place. Disturbed that someone had been in their home while they were away, they also thought, oh, they were disturbed, sorry. They were disturbed that someone had been in their home while they weren't there. Um, but they also thought that it could have been Sue, and maybe she did voluntarily leave, so she came back she came back home just to grab some of her things. However, after looking around, they came across Sue's red pantsuit, which was what she wore to work the last day that she disappeared, was shoved under her bed, but none of her belongings were taken. Her clothes, shoes, makeup, and hair products were all still in the house, untouched. So this confused Kathy, and she decided to call the police to let them know of this new discovery. <coughs> Sorry. Um, police took this incident as Sue returning home when no one was there, as her leaving voluntarily and not wanting anyone to have any contact with her. They noted it in her case and didn't examine the home further. So this was likely a very costly mistake by the police, as they could have tried to lift DNA prints from the dishes or the spare key to determine if it was Sue or if it was the person who abducted her. Um, and the thought on that was that the person who abducted her, whether they killed her or not, could have possibly placed that red pantsuit under the bed to taunt the family if they found it. Um, so Kathy and Christine were obviously upset that police weren't doing anything to find Sue at this point. So they made missing persons posters and flyers and put them up around the area. Um, they did everything that they could to make sure people knew that Sue was missing. In May, 18, uh, in May 1989, a year and a half after she went missing, Sue's mother was asked to provide dental records after an unidentified body was found. It was not a match to Sue. While the family was relieved, they also weren't any closer to finding her. Um, police interviewed people who knew Sue, but none of them had info to help locate her. There were reported sightings, but none of them were confirmed to be her. Over three decades, over three decades, detectives revived the case, but hit dead ends due to lack of evidence. Um, the family believes that if she were alive, she would have contacted, the, contacted them by now, but police say there is no indication of foul play. Her case remained a missing persons case and not a homicide. Years went by and police admitted the chances of finding her alive were very slim. In 2002, Kathy and Christine were asked to submit blood for DNA samples to be on file, the first relatives of a missing person to do so in the state of Minnesota. Police continued um, to do periodic checks on Sue's social security number to see if possibly she applied for a license or employment anywhere, if she did voluntarily run away. And there were no hits until 2006, when a woman in California tried to use it to join the army. She admitted to seeing Sue in a missing person database and thinking that they looked alike so she would just use her social security number because she could pass as her. Um, in 2018, Sue's case was reopened and detectives re-interviewed everyone associated with Sue. They now believe foul play, was foul play was involved, and they also know most killers tell someone of their crimes. So eventually, they're hopeful that someone will come forward with 
news on what happened to Sue. Kathy, Christine, and Sue's friends are all hopeful that they will learn what happened to Sue and be able to bring her home one day. There is currently a $25,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person responsible for her disappearance. Sue was born on February 13, 1968. She was 19 at the time of her disappearance. She was 5 foot 4 and 100 pounds with sandy brown, sandy brown hair and hazel eyes. She was last seen on January 19, 1988 in Lake Elmo, Minnesota. If you have any information on, the, on this case, please contact the Washington County Sheriff's Office at 651-430-7850. Our second story today is Moreland Mansion, which is located in Brentwood, Tennessee. So Moreland Mansion is located adjacent to the Hilton Garden Inn Hotel at 217 Centerview Drive in Brentwood, Tennessee. The land that it sits on was granted to General Robert Irwin, and I want to say it was in 1785 for his service in the Revolutionary War. Um, and I want to say that I read one article that said his name was Robert Irvin with a V and then other ones that said Robert Irwin with a W. Either way, I believe this is the same person. So um, he was gifted this in 1785 for his service in the Revolutionary War. He was given a whopping 640 acres. Uh, Robert was of Steel Creek Township in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, which is still um, Charlotte, pretty much. <laughs> um, he commanded the Mecklenburg County Regiment of the Salisbury District of the North Carolina Militia, and he rose to the rank of Colonel and Commandant of the 1st Mecklen Mecklenburg County Regiment which was established in 1775, split into the 1st and 2nd in 1780, and disestablished in 1783. He fought alongside General Thomas Sumter of the South Carolina Militia at the Battle of Rocky Mount, and then he fought with him again at another battle. I didn't write that one down. Um, and he was reported to be the signer of the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, he also served as a state senator in 1778 to 1783, 1787, 1795, and lastly in 1797 to 1800 when he died while in office. Um, the land given to General Irvin was part of North Carolina at the time. Um, so in 1785, North Carolina and Tennessee were collectively called North Carolina. They didn't split until sometime in the 1800s, I believe. Um, so this land was not used or occupied by Gen General Irvin at the time as he stayed in, Char in the Charlotte area. Um, the land was passed on to his daughter, Eleanor, and her husband, James Moore, and they migrated from North Carolina in 1807 and settled on the property with their seven children. Um, James Moore bought an additional 282 acres 
south and southeast of the original 640 acres. Um, Eleanor died in 1809 of typhoid fever and buried near Liberty near the Liberty Meeting House. So if you don't know, typhoid fever is also called enteric fever, and it was a fever caused by the Salmonella enterica serotype typhi bacteria, and the symptoms typically included fever, headache, belly pain, and either constipation or diarrhea. Um, after this, James went on to marry Sarah Alfred in 1810. So James built a two-story log house on his extra acreage that had a fascinating that had fascinating windows for the time. So they raised and lowered like our modern windows do today. So essentially like a double hung window, which at the time was not something that they had. Um, so apparently people came from great distances just to see it. The house was damaged in 1811 and it was moved to the original 640 acres where it was soon after destroyed by a fire. So James and Eleanor's oldest son, Robert Irwin Moore, fought in a couple battles in 1812. Then he worked in Columbia and Cincinnati. It does not say where Columbia is. Um, I know it's not the country. I wanna say it's Columbia, South Carolina, but he did a lot of work in the north and northeast, including Pennsylvania. So it could be some town that's in the north, northeast that I'm not aware of. Um, but he worked there for roughly seven years. Afterwards, he went back to Nashville and opened up a store on the northeast side and became pretty successful. Um, so his father, James, died in 1838 and left 50 acres of the land to Robert. Um, this 50 acres is where the current Moreland Mansion sits. Construction began in 1846, but Robert died in 1848 before construction was completed. So his brother, Alexander, finished it, but he altered the plans of the house so that it wasn't as grand as Robert wanted it. Um, and this in this created it to be less money. So his brother was kind of a little more stickler for his money. So what he did was he altered it so that it would cost less. So if you look at the current Moreland Mansion, the door, the front door is offset to the left, I believe, because Alexander took out the left wing of the house. He said, don't even build it. So they have the middle part and the right wing. So that's why it's a little offset. Just a little fun fact. Um, so he, nevertheless, this house was still well built and beautiful. It has 22 rooms officially. There's some reports that say it has 28, whatever. It's got a lot of freaking rooms, right? <laughs> um, so the rooms are said to have high ceilings. The wood finishings are bird's eye maple. Um, the original roof came from England. It's like a me special metal roof, which part of it is still on the house today. It had four chimneys, tall columns on the front and the back porches. It was just beautiful. Um, the house also has a full basement, which was used as quarters for the servants. Some reports also said that it was slaves. Um, I believe they did have slaves because this is 
the mid-1800s. Um, so, yeah. It's for the servants, the slaves. I know this was also like a plantation. They also had a lot of animals, so I'm sure there was some slaves. Uh, the home was built, was also used as a hospital for both Confederate and Union soldiers during the Civil War. Um, Robert Irwin Moore, so the man who built this, started this house, had married three times. His first wife was Isabel Harlan, his second wife was Martha Clay, and his third wife was Jane McKissack Walker. And they, by the time he had this third marriage, he had had six children. Um, some reports said that he had more than six children, but six is what I've got. And three of them lived to, um, one, two, yeah, six children and three of them lived to adulthood, I'm guessing, because all I had was three that they gave me information about. So there was Robert I. Moore II, who married Lena McKissack, but they didn't have any children. So they never had children. They died out, whatever. Um, there was James Moore, who married Sally Chairs, and they had three daughters, whose names were Sue Bell, Bessie, and Sarah Moore. Um, the third son that they had was Hugh Campbell Moore, and this is where the house was passed to, was Hugh. And he married Kate Jones Gear, and they made their home at Moreland Mansion. They had six kids. Only three of their kids um, lived to adulthood, and they also had three sons. Uh, so Alan Jones, Hugh Campbell, and Robert Irwin IV. None of these sons married, but they continued to live at Moreland after their parents Hugh and Kate passed away. Hugh Jr. also died in the or died while living in the house. I don't know if he died in the house. Um, but he died in 1937. Alan and Robert the 4th sold the property in 1944 and Alan died in 1955. Um, I don't know when Robert the 4th died or if he I'm pretty sure he's still not alive. Um, he'd be really old by now. Um, anyway, so Moreland was sold to Mr. and Mrs. Oscar Noel the fir- Oh, Moreland was sold to Mr. and Mr. Oscar Noel first. When Mr. Noel died, the house was bought by Mr. and Miss, Mrs. Albert Maloney, and the house was passed on after that. This is just what was in the record that I could find. Um, the house was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1975, and while it wasn't unique at the time that it was built, it's quite unique today as it is strictly Greek Revival style architecture. Um, over the years, many companies have wanted to buy the mansion and the land to build stores, and they even talked about building a mall. Um, so the registry prevents it from being torn down or altered without um, it being, like, the only thing they can really do to it is restore it. Um, however, it is surrounded, the, the surrounding acreage was sold off, um, and it's surrounded by retail businesses, 
And there's even the hotel that surrounds it today, which is the Hilton Garden Inn, which I believe was opened in 2016. So it's, what, five years old? Um, there's one definite ghost that I was able to find stories on, and that's the ghost of Ruth Moore. So in one article, it said she was the niece of Robert Irwin Moore I, and in another article, it said she was the daughter. I did not find any information on all of Robert Irwin Moore's six children um, that had a name Ruth. So unless this Ruth, it was her like middle name that they call her by or something, or if it was in fact a niece of his that lived there. So the only thing I can think of is his brother Alexander. It might have been his daughter because he's the one who finished the construction of the house, so he probably lived there. Um, but I could not confirm it any with any documentation. So it's his niece or his daughter. I'm not sure. Um, but she was said to have mysteriously died on the eve of her wedding. And um, two versions of that was one that she fell down the stairs on her way to the rehearsal dinner and a servant found her. Or two, she fell ill and died in her room. We don't know which one is the truth. Um, the last family that lived at Moreland was the McKnights, and they had a son who told a friend about Ruth who lived in a room on the second floor. And his friend was Bobby Hullett, and he reports that um, his friend's brother used to play chess with her in that room. Um, and he's even seen a chess piece move almost on command so apparently like the brother said come on Ruth it's your turn and then the chess piece moved um, Ruth has also been said to have a sweet tooth so the McKnight family would leave sugar cubes on the dining room table and then they'd all go into another room with all the family members sitting there and then they'd go back to the dining room and find that there was a sugar cube missing so they kind of nicknamed her the sweet tooth ghost um, when the McKnights moved out, a law firm moved in and said that she would um, play the ghost, a ghostly piano at night. Um, people have also reported feeling her ghostly presence, seeing her in a blue gown, which is interesting because she was apparently buried in a blue gown. Um, so that's kind of her story. She said to actively haunt the mansion. Um, supposedly there was an old stable that used to be on the property when the McKnights also lived there. Um, it is not there anymore, but this was supposedly haunted by Union soldiers who apparently killed dogs of the rebel army because they didn't want to be tracked. So, um, if you live in the South at that time, you were really big into hunting. I'm pretty sure if you live in the South now, you're still really big into hunting, um, so these dogs were trained to hunt. So I guess apparently the rebel army would send the dogs out to find Union soldiers that were hiding, trying to stake out a place. Um, so the Union soldiers would kill these dogs because obviously they didn't want to be found. Well, apparently what they would do is when they would find these dog killers, they would bring them back to that stable and then they would torture and kill them there, supposedly. So, um... It said that the McKnight family's dog hated that old stable and they would often he would often bark at it and run away. 
So it would make sense that this place would be haunted if people were tortured there. Um, the house was also used as a jail during the Civil War, as well as it was a hospital during the Civil War. So the infirmary was the cellar of the house, and because it's been restored, you might not be able to see it anymore, but when the McKnights lived there, um, Bobby and his friend, uh, J Jason, Jacob, something like that is the McKnight boy's name, um, they went down into the cellar exploring it, and they would see blood on the walls, which was back from when it was an infirmary. Um, so I'm pretty sure it's not there anymore since it's been restored. Um, and so this is all I could find on the ghost or any happenings at Moreland Mansion. Um, it was once in a, a sprawling estate with livestock and everything. Um, now it's just a mansion that's surrounded by a bunch of commercial properties. Um, I'll actually be in the Nashville area, Brentwood to be exact, um, at the end of October. And I'll be staying about five minutes away from Moreland Mansion. So I fully intend on going past it. I could not find if they do any tours or anything like that. I think it is a closed place for, at the moment. But if they do happen to open it up for the Halloween season or something, I'll try to go in and see it. If not, I want to pass by it at least and see its beauty. So I'll take pictures and post that when it happens. Um, and while I'm down there, I also want to check out any haunted places that could be down there. I did kind of Google some stuff, but if you guys know of anything for sure that's haunted that's in the Nashville area, let me know. I'll be down there for a few days and I'd love to go see some stuff. Um, but yeah, so that's Moreland Mansion. All right, that is a wrap on episode 23. I'm honestly curious um, what you guys think happened to Susan Swaddell. Um, so thank you again, Brandy, for suggesting that story. Um, if you guys want to email me to let me know what you guys think happened to her or what you thought of that story or even what you think of Moreland Mansion, um, I'm happy to hear it. Um, I'm also hopeful that next month I can update you guys all on Moreland Mansion, but we'll see what happens. Uh, they don't even have like a website for Moreland Mansion. It, even though it's on the Registry of Historical Places, it doesn't look like it's a museum right now, which I really feel like it should be with the amount of history that it holds. Um, and I honestly think that it should be a more haunted place. I mean, it was a hospital during the Civil War. I mean, it's gotta have ghosts, but I mean, I can't just make up ghosts. <laughs> um, so I just went on what other people have experienced there. Um, so anyways, remember that you can email your personal stories to eat.sleep.anddontdie at gmail.com. You can also email me your request on stories that you want to hear. Um, follow the Facebook group. It's called ESDD Podcast Fan Group. You can also follow us on Instagram at ESDD Podcast. I post on both of those. Um, yeah, so thanks for joining me this week. I hope you guys have a great week, and I'll talk to you all again next week.